morning, I want us to continue in the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. If you will turn there with me. We have a very interesting lesson on our hands this morning, one that I don't know how many of us in the religious world tend to this topic very easily. It has a little bit to do with the, the topic of ancestry, spiritual ancestry. And you notice that the title this morning is, Who's Your Daddy? <laughs> and you'll find in the end here, that's what matters the most, Amen. more than anything else about your life. But you know, we have this curiosity about our ancestry. I'm not sure what it is that causes it, probably many elements that cause us to be curious about where we've come from, curious about why we are the way we are, why we look the way we look. I, th- I think being an American lends itself to that a little bit. You know, we're in a unique country. Really, many countries don't have the melting pot dynamic that we have here as a country where people come from so many different ethnic backgrounds and that we come together and then we blend those ethnic backgrounds and our cultures come together and we blend together. And, you know, there's a, a bit of a genetic pool in America that's, that's kind of unique. And then, you know, modern science is tapping into more and more of the biology of what makes us tick and why we are the way we are. So genetics is a curiosity factor now. And, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some really interesting developments taking place in the, the medical world. Um, there's some elements. I'm not sure I want to go where modern technology is about to take us. You know, there's certain DNA profiles now that, you know, based on your ancestry, based on your genetic pool that makes you a little bit who you are, that you can pull some, some genetic makeup in your DNA and you can discover how likely you are to have this disease or that disease or to have your lifespan be this much or to contract cancer. Uh, and so, you know, you're gonna have this opportunity in not too long, I'm not sure I wanna know any of this, that, you know, and maybe at age 20 or so to do a little DNA sample and somebody's gonna sit and tell you, okay, at about age 40, you're gonna have these issues. At age 50, if you live to be that long, because most people with your DNA profile don't make it that far, right? This is kind of information you're gonna get. And... That's all kind of coming, it's kind of been handed down to us. This is, this is how it is to receive kind of the gene pool, the ancestry of who we are. Um, you know, then there's the, the interesting, did you know who was related to who kind of thing? Who was the son of who? You know, did, I don't know if you've ever traced out some of your relatives to find out whether you got somebody famous in your background. Yeah, my great, great, great grandfather was this person or that person. You, know, you look at the genetics and the ancestry of people like, uh, you know, just locally here, like the Mannings. You know, what, what, are, what are the odds? You know, the, the Archie Manning, quarterback of the Saints, is going to have two sons who would be incredible athletes and would be quarterbacks in the NFL, would win like the most significant awards in the NFL. I mean, what an amazing gene pool. I mean, my, my kids are probably going to sue me for what I'm passing on to them. <laughs> So like, Dad, thanks for giving me genes that make me great at nothing. You know, I'm just kind of like average at everything. Um, <clears throat> but today, we're going to learn something about our spiritual ancestry. And for some of us, it's going to be a real shock. You know, a shock right up there at the level of when we discovered that Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's dad. You know, remember that? It's like, what? No way! be kidding me, Darth Vader. Oh my gosh. Well, this is, this is about how we're going to respond today to find out who we're related to spiritually. All right, let's look at John chapter 8. 
And we, we read down to verse 36 last week as Jesus is encountering religious Jewish people. Right? And sometimes we kind of lose the fact that these are religious folks because there's always such hostility with Jesus. Jesus, the most significant religious figure ever, and when he has a conversation, it can never be a nice one with these folks. So we almost, we just almost make them into these adversarial, ugly individuals. No, these are religious folks. These are people, if they live next door to you, you would respect them for their piety, the manner of their life, and the way in which they dressed, and they talked about God. That's who this audience is. And Jesus made this great promise to them about abiding in his word and being his disciples and you would know the truth and the truth would set you free. And rather than them being eager to say, oh, teach us about that. Remember, they, they spoke back to him. They opposed him on that. Well, Jesus continues in this discussion with them in verse 37 after they have said, hey, we don't need this freedom thing. We're, we're descendants of Abraham. I mean, do you understand our ancestral gene pool? Abraham, man. We don't, we don't need this freedom thing that you're talking about. Verse 37, Jesus says this. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of that you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, "We were not born of sexual immorality." We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because, he, and because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Oh, Father, this morning, your word, as rich and wonderful as it is, remains a mystery to us apart from the Holy Spirit opening our eyes and causing us to not be described in this passage as those who do not understand and those who don't want to understand. So, Lord, this morning we cast ourselves humbly before you. Say, Spirit of God, 
open our eyes and give us ears to hear this morning the truth contained in this word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first thing we encounter in this passage, I'm just going to walk us through a few observations here, is that it's quite possible that you can hear the word of God and it's, it's, it kind of bounces off of us. Not all of us receive the word of God. There's just some folks who just, you can't make that stick to me. There's no place for the word. That's how Jesus put it. Words that find no place in you. Now the question is, why? Why doesn't God's word, I mean, Jesus almost pokes at this unreality. It's like, you know, I'm sent from God. I'm bringing you the truth. But you don't believe and you don't hear and you don't understand and you don't even want to. Why is that? Puzzling. Well, you know, again here, and I need to go back and visit this again. I'll put it in your notes. Again, Jesus highlights the reality. You can be religious and unrelated to God. And even be hostile to the ideas and thoughts of God. You can be religious And be unrelated to God. Just because you dress yourself in religious garb and you count yourself to be a spiritual person and you're found in religious settings and you go to church and you're around things that are religious emblems and religious books and you use religious words, that's this audience. But they didn't know God. As a matter of fact, not only did they not know God when God was there and the truth of God was being said, they were hostile to God. I mean, they were offended. They got their back all up. Now, listen, I guarantee you, at some point, that's described every one of us. At some point, somebody tried to share the gospel with me, and I got offended by it. I got my back up. Why, because I was an irreligious person? No, no, no. I grew up religious. When somebody mentioned Jesus Christ, I I knew who you were talking about. I knew the storyline. I knew the stations of the cross were. I knew about morality. I knew all those things. But you bring the gospel to me at some point, and I can get hostile on you in a moment. So you can be religious and not be right with God. And that's a point we can never say enough of. I know I've, I've mentioned that several times. But, you know, I, and I look at this scene here, and you got these folks who are dressed in their religious garb, their religious lifestyle, but behind the scenes... They're plotting to kill Jesus. I mean, you do realize when you get towards the end of the Gospels, uh, the crucifixion of Christ is as much a mafia hit as it is anything else. It It is corrupt people of power, and the people of power in this day and age were religious people. Movers and shakers who were connected, who could pull off getting the Romans to do what they wanted them to do. And that's exactly what they did. So behind the scenes, these religious people are plotting to kill Jesus Christ. Now, how, how inconsistent is this picture? You know, it, it reminds me of the, the scene from The Godfather. You know, here's Michael Carleone. He's got his little baby. They're in the church. They're christening the little baby. Right, you guys remember this scene if you've seen The Godfather movie? And back and forth go the images here. In the religious setting, everybody's dressed nice, nice, doing their little thing, and then the next one flashes to some mafia boss being shot in the head. 
And then they go back to the church. Everybody's doing their symbols. And then they go to the next scene, and this other guy's being butchered by a machine gun. Right? You know, and they all walk out, and boom, boom, boom. And these are the images that go back and forth and back and forth. It's like, dude, if, you know, if you're going to go hire people to shoot people, why are you going through this? Why, why, why are you going through the motions of christening your child? Why, why are you wanting a religious setting of your life while you're murdering people? Now, listen, I know this. Well, keep, take it easy. It's a movie. Oh, like nobody does anything like that in real life, right? See, we live in a culture where religion and religious life is amazingly comfortable with other things being sewn together to it and partnered with it. Right? You can have, you can have, at one moment you can be attending church after you just blitzed the other night. You can be living a drunk lifestyle, especially in this city, hello, live a drunk lifestyle but still be religious, you know, still kind of hang around religion. I mean, didn't a lot of us grow up that way? And a lot of us still look around and see a lot of that going on? I mean, you can be religious and be a racist and everything's okay. Isn't that amazing? You can have hate in your heart for a group of people that you've ascribed aspects to who they are. And then in the next moment, you can be in the church doing whatever it is that you do that you call religious. Listen, I, I grew up around it. I know what it's like to sit and watch the evening news and have commentary from the sofa. You know what I'm talking about? Just let the right story come along where the right victim and the wrong race are involved. Now, listen, let me tell you something, and this goes in both directions today. There's too many religious people in this city on both sides of the issue that are racist in their hearts. Black and white taking place. But it's amazing how comfortable we are to be religious and racist all at the same time. That doesn't fly with Scripture. It doesn't fly with the truth. We live in a sensual culture where you can be very comfortable being religious and fornicating and committing adultery and divorcing left and right. Everybody's comfortable with that. You can be religious and yet somehow manage to be unforgiving all at the same time. Right? We're comfortable. These things go together. Listen, I hope you're not one of these people, but I, I suspect that there may be some here. That you could be seated at the kitchen table discussing all kinds of things until that person comes up and the smile drains from your face and a fresh wound is again picked because you're mentioning him. Him. And there's this issue. We, we, we just sung all kinds of songs about forgiveness and about God forgiving us and, and yet we can turn around and be unforgiving. See, we, we live in this society, this culture that's awful comfortable with things that do not and should not be able to coexist together. Listen to this thought from J.C. Ryle. He says, let us settle firmly in our minds that connection with the good church and good ancestors is no proof whatever that we ourselves are in the way to be saved. 
We need something more than this. We must be joined to Christ himself by a living faith. We must know something experimentally of the work of the Spirit in our hearts. They used the word back then experimentally, the way we would use the word experientially. There's an experience of God going on in our lives, not just some principles that are far from reality. Ken Hughes says, does the Word of God speak to us in such a way that it penetrates and has an effect on our lives? If it does not, that may be an indication we are not in a state of grace. A life unaffected by God needs to be asking the question as to where God is in association with that life. This audience listening to Jesus was seriously in need of examining their relationship to God because here was the Son of God speaking the words of life to them with no effect, no eagerness to receive it. Instead, they were all the more hostile wanting to oppose him. See, we should be able to find in our life an experiencing of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You, you, you should be able to, I, I just kind of broke down, because that sounds, what does that look like? What's, you know, what's the experiencing of the Holy Spirit look like? Well, if you look in the Bible how the Holy Spirit's ministry is depicted, the fruit of that ministry should be traceable into our life. Right? He is the Holy Spirit, that word holy, it means set apart, means other than. So there should be other than aspects of our life. There should be some collision where the holiness of God come in contact with, you know, the sinfulness of our experience in this world. There should be a sense of conviction. I mean, are you experiencing conviction in your life? Do you do things and, and what's followed by that doing of that thing is a sense of this wasn't right. That's not right. I shouldn't be doing this. And does that sense of conviction then lead to repentance toward God? Listen, not remorse that I better stop doing this because I could lose my job. That's not repentance toward God. That's self-preservation. I better stop treating my wife this way because if I don't, you know, fill in the blank. That's not repentance toward God. That's self-interest. That's protecting self-interest. The work of the Holy Spirit is about God. It's about God being holy, and my sin affects the holiness of God. And when I get convicted, my repentance is toward God. And then there's bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. There's a new pattern that begins to grow in my life. There's a diminishing effect of sin in my life. Is, Is that being experienced in our lives? Do we experience the fruit of the Spirit? If the, if the Spirit is present in our life, there's going to be fruit. There's going to be God-like fruit of love, joy, peace. Right? Those are big words because they're love the way God loves. They're love that brings into a moment when you've been wronged, when people who don't deserve to be loved back by you, in that moment the Holy Spirit's love kicks in and you give love where there is no love being deserved. Jesus was not quick to to give applause to those who love like the Gentiles. Oh, you love those who love you? Great. Those who don't have anything to do with God do that as well. This is a supernatural love. 
It's joy that comes from the Spirit of God. It's, it's supernatural joy. It's not circumstantial. It's not, I got good news, I feel good today. It's a joy about my life in God, the hope that I have that's, that always walks with me. It's peace that passes understanding, right? This is the kind of stuff the Holy Spirit is bringing. I mean, do you have a sense in your life that you've walked through circumstances and been able to experience joy and peace in the midst of those circumstances? Or, as I found myself praying just the other night, and the Lord just corrected me, that, that I would not be asking God to, rather than, rather than manifest joy and peace in the midst of something that doesn't change, simply always asking God to change things. God, change that. Make that different. God, make it to where I'm not being affected that way. And it was like, you know, the Lord just kind of jumped on me the other night and said, why don't, you, why don't you pray that that condition wouldn't matter and that you would experience joy and peace even if that never changed. That's what it means to be free. And I, I, you know, Lord, that's true. That's, that would be what I want. See, I mean, when, when we're sane in those moments where the Holy Spirit speaks to us and we get some sanity about us, none of us really want to sign on for a life where there's just a long line of people and circumstances that have all got to line up like planets for us to get happy. Anybody want to sign on for that life? You really want to trust people that way? Everybody's got to, okay, if, you, if I could just get that person to take two steps to the left and this person 10 steps to the right and then the person behind them one step here and as soon as you get one here and then something happens in their life and they bump out of the way and the, the stuff's always like this and you can just never get happy, can you? Because I just can't align the planets of my world. Well, the fruit of the Spirit, though, is the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of planets being aligned. It's not the fruit of circumstances. It's the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience. See, listen, when everything goes your way and nothing is making you frustrated, patience in that moment is not the fruit of the Spirit. It's just favorable circumstances, right? And that's what we pray for. Oh, you know, I just want to be, I just want to be more patient. And what we pray for is, God, would you make everything in my life just go right? So I would just be patient. But you're not being patient in that moment. (laughs) You're just taking it easy because things are easy. Experiencing the Holy Spirit is a radical, amazing thing. It's not cheap in it. It's experiencing life when it doesn't make sense that we experience life that way. It's experiencing the gifts of the Spirit. And how many of us know what it is to experience enablement by God? Right? I mean, you bring yourself to a circumstance or situation and and your abilities go this far and God enables you to go this far. God enables whatever you're doing to have this big an impact rather than this big because that's all you had to bring. And God enables a bigger thing to happen. God enables boldness in our lives, right? Too many of us, this is a terrible thing. It's a good thing for us to survey as 2009's upon us. Too many of us are living these lives that are about this big because that's about all the courage that we have. And we keep trying to muster up courage from within ourselves. I want to talk today about ancestry and what you're reaching into when you want to muster up from yourself courage. Well, that's not where God wants you to get it. God wants spirit-given boldness That's a manifestation of the Spirit in our lives, where our lives take on strange size 
And we can't understand why it is. Where you, you know, we start sounding like, listen, 10 years ago, you'd have never got me to. That ought to be the way we sound. Because that's a manifestation of the Spirit. Well, these words not finding their place in this audience and perhaps maybe in ours. What was Jesus' reason for that? He says, you know, my words find no place in you. Look in verse 38. He says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. You want to know why my words don't stick to you? Why my words don't find their way into you? Because of spiritual ancestry. You get that problem from your father's side of the family. Right, when we like to kind of blame that issue for our kids, kind of diagnosing, you know. They do that because of you. They get that from you, your side of the family. Well, this is a reality here. Jesus is highlighting the fact that, you know why you don't, you don't get it? Because you get that from your father. Right? Your spiritual ancestry matters. And look what he says in verse 39. Here's how, he resp- here's how he responds to spiritual ancestry that matters. Verse 39. They answered him. Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Now, highlight that. Ancestry in Jesus' understanding of it spiritually brings with it definite impact. Definite impact. He doesn't say, if you really were the descendants of Abraham, you know, you'd have a 50-50 shot that something might be going on with you. No, he makes it definite. He said, if you, if you really were the descendants of Abraham, you would be doing the works of Abraham. That's a definite statement. That's a 100% definite statement. Right? It's almost like you, know, you, you take a match and you set it to this bucket of something and it just won't catch. It won't catch. Well, you can say all you want. I'm gasoline, I'm gasoline, I'm gasoline. No, I can tell you scientifically, without a doubt, if you were gasoline and I put fire to you, you would combust. So my conclusion in my experiment is you're not gasoline. You might be apple juice. You might look like gasoline, but you're not gasoline. Because if you were, you would combust. If you had the faith that Abraham had and you were his descendants by faith, you would do the things that Abraham did. Why? Because faith does that kind of stuff. Faith is combustible. If you had that kind of faith in you, you would be doing what your spiritual father did. You'd walk like he walked. Look in James chapter 2, verse 14. Your outline, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So also, faith by itself If it does not have works, it's dead. And verse 18 says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So it's a very important thing to take notice of. So you can hang around religion, you can be real religious, And you know what? That might only put you in the same category as demons. Now, how's that for blowing your mind? Because the demons believe. 
Do you think the demons, if you could have a conversation with a demon, he'd go, God, I don't believe in God. Oh, no, no, no. They believe in God. And they tremble about him. So they actually know some stuff about him. They may actually have a better theology of God than we probably do. So what? In this context, that belief doesn't mean a thing. That belief doesn't produce anything in their life, and it doesn't mean anything of benefit to them. Do you want to show, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, let me just highlight something here. Because this verse here has turned the church on its ear, historically. Because this sure sounds like, well, Abraham, Abraham was saved by his works then, right? Or, if nothing else, his faith got him 50% of the way there, and his works got him the other 50% of the way there. Isn't that what this says? No. Because it clearly says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The moment he believed, the moment he had faith, Abraham was righteous in the eyes of God. Not God didn't say, hey, Abraham, congratulations, you're 50% there. Now we're going to have to work this thing out now. You're going to need to put on some activity and hopefully you're going to do it at a good level and we can close the gap on the rest of that 50%. No, the moment Abraham believed God, he was counted as righteous. But then that faith, being genuine faith, produced all kinds of actions. It produced work. And the point of this passage is, if you say you believe and there's nothing that comes after it, well, then nothing should make you look back in faith and say, apple juice, not gasoline. Because if that was real faith, you'd have gone up in flames by now. You'd have produced work in your life. So it's the works that bear witness, that verify that the faith was real faith. It's not faith and then works and you add them together and then God it's 100% for you. But there will be works in our lives. And if you were the descendant of Abraham, if he was your spiritual father, if you had the faith in him and that was in you, then you would do, guarantee you would do what Abraham did. You'd combust and you guys ain't combusting. So, apparently, Abraham's not your father. And Jesus has to clarify who is. But they go on further, and they defend themselves again, saying God's their father. And Jesus says in verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. Right? Remember, this is love in the God category. You would be absolutely nuts about Christ. You would be enamored with sacrificially giving yourself toward, if God really were your father, you wouldn't be sitting here having this hostile conversation with me. You wouldn't be resisting my word. You wouldn't be resisting what I want to do in your life. If God were your father, then you would love me. Your heart would be full of love. It'd be inherent in you. It would be your, your ancestry would give that to you spiritually in your life. Now, I put a note in your outline here, and I know I've hit this note many times. But, you know, words mean something in Scripture. 
Sometimes they're uncomfortable words, but they shatter our false religious ideas. Look at this. This word is in the passage. If God were your father. If he were. If, if he were. Well, then perhaps he is not. And that's a concept that perhaps today is lost in the idea of you know, the, the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. Well, God's father of all. You know, biblically, that gets stepped on over and over and over again. And please, I hope you see that in this passage yet again. It's being stepped on here. Again, in verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Right? Can we just conclude today? The Bible clearly teaches not everyone is a child of God. Amen. And not everyone is of God. Now, why is that an important issue? And I keep bringing that up over and over again. One, because the Bible keeps bringing it up over and over again. Secondly, because it is the the earnestness and the urgency of the gospel. See, if I'm walking around on planet Earth thinking, well, in some mysterious way, everyone is a child of God. And everyone's okay with God. And everyone is of God. Well, then the gospel has no earnestness and it has no urgency. I don't need to hear it. And I certainly don't need to tell anybody about it. But if there's a reality that there are a mix of people out there and some of them are of God and some of them are not. Some of them are children of God and some of them, according to this passage, are not. They are children of the devil. Doesn't that sound weird? I know somebody's going to listen to this online and I'm going to get some kind of weird piece of mail. I can just feel it coming right now. This guy believes people are children of the devil. Um, Now the Bible teaches that those would be the two categories that ultimately, spiritually, you're going to fall into. Children of God, children of the devil. Now, if that's the case, well, then the gospel now has urgency because there is a rescue mission for the church to bring people out of darkness into light, out of being children of the devil into being children of God. If that truth doesn't exist, well, then the gospel doesn't need to be told to anybody and it doesn't need to be received by anybody. So this is an important, important issue. J.C. Ryle says, with this saying before us, We can only come to one conclusion. Where there is no love to Christ, there is no sonship to God. I know that preaches comfortably in the settings of suburban America where the culture is comfortable with Jesus Christ. But but what do you do when you take this statement into the world? And you go global with this statement and Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. That would be the effect of God being your father. You would love me. And you go into parts of the world where Jesus Christ is not loved. And the outcome is, well, then God is not your father. That's what these verses mean. J.C. Rowell again says, the sentence is full of condemnation to all who know nothing experimentally of Christ and neither think nor feel nor care anything about him. Crowds of so-called Christians are in this unhappy state and are plainly not God's children, whatever they may think. Now, let me me just chase a point here for a second. If one looks at the religious community, which we're a part of, and finds that there is a lack of, of works and a lack of love in the setting of the religious community, how does one go about fixing that? 
I'm going to preach this morning, and I understand that there's a, there's a lack of passion for God here this morning. There's a lack of love for God here this morning. There's a, there's a lack of the works of God going on in our lives. There's a lack of pursuing the kingdom expanding. There's a lack of saying no to sin in our lives. How do we fix that? Do we devise, and I'm concerned, and I'm sure we're going to share a lot more about this. Do we devise means to pressure you into acting like a Christian? Phrases like, well, Christians don't do that. Or some element of discouragement for you to continue in doing that and pressuring you from the outside to modify your behavior. And if nothing else, at least act like you love God. Right? Some of us as Christians, parents are the worst in this category. Some of us as, as Christians are more concerned about whether or not people act like they love God than whether they really love God. If God were your father, you would love God. And the same way, when you put fire to gasoline, you don't have to tell gasoline to imitate a flame. Do you? Hey, I mean, act like you're hot. I mean, I'm touching you. You know, that's your idea of hot? That's not really hot, you know? I don't even see anything. Can you, like, spark at least? You know, and we pressure and we bring this exterior thing happening. Listen, everybody in this room should be seriously concerned. If God is my father, I should love Christ. If I'm of the faith of Abraham... Out of me should come pouring and leaping the bounding works of faith. And it shouldn't take somebody cornering me. I mean, I appreciate all the accountability that we have, and there's a reason for that, and it's good. I'm not trying to destroy that. But listen, if the only reason you're finding in your soul for you to avoid some sin in your life is because you got an accountability group that's going to catch you, Well, I'm glad they're doing damage control, but if your faith was of the faith of Abraham, you wouldn't want to do that. And if you loved Christ with all of your heart, you wouldn't want that. The problem is with what I want. If I don't fix what I want, I just keep twisting screws on the outside. Listen, this is a temptation when we deal with our kids. It's like we say, you know, we've defined, we've defined Christian behavior, right? It's polite, it's engaging, doesn't use curse words, doesn't go on the wrong internet sites, it, it doesn't do embarrassing things in a mall, it behaves itself in a, in a home. And, you know, when our kids get outside of that realm, it's like, you know, listen, I'm not, parental discipline is part of our lives, okay? But I, what I'm saying here is not that we should do away with parental discipline, But that parental discipline is intended to keep the kids close to the gospel. But it doesn't mean that if I've figured out a way as a parent to get my kids to respond and to stay in bounds, it doesn't mean that they have received the gospel. And this is when you're going to find that out, when you take the leash off of them. And at certain points in your life, it's appropriate to take the leash off in certain categories. And you begin to find out just how far will you run 
once I don't exercise control and threaten you and don't give you an allowance and take the car away and trap you in your room or don't feed you for a week, whatever it is that you use. <laughs> now, once I stop doing those things, where are you going with that? See, I'm having to wrestle through this issue because it's very tempting, even though, I mean, I think I understand something about the grace of God, but it's very tempting to be found majoring in the external pressures. Let me just get you back on the playing field constantly, constantly, constantly. And what I may be missing is, okay, yeah, you're in bounds, but your heart is far from me, God says. I don't have your heart. I want your heart. See, I had this unique experience growing up that was kind of backwards from kids who had been raised in the church because I got saved as a teenager. My parents were non-believers. My parents were much older than me, so they, they didn't grow up, you know, having front row seats, the drug culture, and, you know, so they were very naive about a number of sinful activities. And since deception operates in all of us, and I was pretty good at it anyway, I could get away with a lot. And so sin, I mean, the playing field of sin for me was huge. But I met Christ right before I turned 15 years old. And strangely, in that time, I didn't get involved in a church because I was 15 years old. My parents wouldn't let me go to another church. And for the next several years in my life, the boundaries for my lifestyle got narrower and narrower and narrower. But not because I was sitting in a covenant group and having somebody tell me, no, Keith, smoking pot, that might be something that wouldn't go along with being a Christian. I know you ought to think about that. But you know what? Something inside of me told me that. See, no one said, hey, 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 dude, now that you've signed on the line here, we expect you to toe the line, okay? Don't be doing none of that partying on the weekend thing anymore. That's over. You're a Christian now. You better start acting like a Christian. Okay, I'm not saying it's wrong for us to exhort one another, encourage one another, and help one another. But that cannot be all that we're doing, and it cannot be ultimately what we're after. At some point here, Christianity needs to be an internal explosion in our lives. I, I literally got saved on a Friday night in February. And one week later, as I trafficked through my typical patterns of living as a teenager, found myself at a party where there was drugs and alcohol, which was a regular purview for me on a weekend and walked away from that meeting. Do you understand? I got saved and never did drugs again. Never drank to drunkenness again in my life. Because somebody put a rope on me? <laughs> it was one week. I didn't attend classes. There wasn't like a school of the word on how to act like a Christian now that you got saved as a teenager. I didn't have a youth group. I didn't have a youth pastor. I had none of those things. Well, what happened? The Spirit of God communicated an impulse in my heart. I didn't want those things anymore. I wanted something else. So this, is, this is the ultimate fix, and this is the fix we find in this passage here. Jesus is trying to explain. You want to understand why you do the things that you do? It's because of your spiritual ancestry. It's because of what's inside of you. It's because of the gene pool out of which you live your life. And if that doesn't get fixed, you're going to keep on doing what you're doing. Let me move through these next couple points here quickly. 
Jesus highlights an aspect that should be rather theologically challenging to us. The fact that we are unable and unwilling. Look in verse 43. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Look in verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Now, actually, a little more conservative translation would not introduce that word bear. ESV brings that word in, but a little more conservative translation in New American Standard would be would say this. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Right, cannot. It's, it's a combination of a negative added to the word dunamis. You don't have the power. You're not able. Dunamis is an enablement word. You don't have it. Right? In other places in Scripture, the same word is used, 1 Corinthians 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able, same word, to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. John 6, no one can come, same word, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we are unable, unable would be one thing, but we are also unwilling. And some theologians would say it is our unwillingness that makes us unable. So these two are related. Look what he says in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. New American Standard says, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. See, so here's the dilemma on our hands. Based on our spiritual ancestry, the fact that we don't come from a relationship in a gene pool with God, we come from a spiritually void place and the devil is our father. Now, he's not our creator and little origin element here that doesn't play into this. But our spiritual ancestry is from a rebel from one who is anti-God, one who does not want God, one who is hostile to God. So not are we unable, but unwilling. We don't want, in the natural sense, I don't want what God wants. I want what I want. That's what the devil wanted, right? He didn't want what God wanted. He wanted what he wanted. listen, Listen to this. James 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And listen, wouldn't all of us just love to say, listen, you know, the, the Flip Wilson thing from the 70s, the devil made me do it. Uh, if it's not, you know, go right to the top man, we'd, we'd like to at least to blame it on one of his friends, you know, or a relative of ours that we're very convinced that is a child of the devil. Um, that person made me do this. But ultimately what we're saying is it, is, it is my environment that makes me sin. It's the people around me. It's the circumstances that led me to this moment that, you know, caused me to sin, right? Whenever you deal with uh, almost any person, but kids are especially prone to this, it's to justify, it's to explain why did I just bludgeon my brother? Because 
right? And there's this great explanation as to why the violence broke out. Because, you know, ultimately it wasn't, it was my environment. It was, see, sin was inevitable because of those that are around me. No, no. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Why do I sin? Because I want to sin. Well, I didn't really want to do that. Well, no, but you wanted to be left alone. And you weren't getting left alone. So when you didn't get left alone, you became very angry and you sinned and you killed this person or harmed that person, right? Why did that happen? Because I wanted something in that moment. Each person is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So clearly in Scripture, here's our dilemma. We are a people who have descended from the teaching, attitude, spiritual content of the devil himself, and we are unable and unwilling to understand and receive God's word in our lives. Now, this should raise some serious theological questions for us. Two questions that I'll move through quickly. One, do you see man's condition biblically? When you come to humanity, listen, if you're watching too much, you know, Oprah and whoever else is out there that's, that's nice and dealing with the nice component of humanity, if you're watching too much of that, your view of man is not a biblical view. You know, their view of man is that there's just, just good inherent in man. You know, that's why you hear verses like this and you go, what? what? Child of the devil? Man, you must go to some freaky church that believes people are children of the devil. No. You watch a freaky program that believes everybody's good. (laughs) The God who created everybody, who knows everything, told me this. Who told you everybody was good? Oprah. Well, all right. Have at it. All right, here's the condition biblically of man. Man lives in a condition of human inability. Sin is incapacitating. It's not just inconvenient. It spiritually is incapacitating. Why do you not understand? Because you're not able. That's why you don't. Secondly, there's this element of human hostility. Jesus said, I've spoken the truth to you, and yet you want to kill me. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Jesus said, he's not armed. There's no weapons being pulled here. He's not about to expose something about them, get them all to lose their jobs. He just told them, you know, if you abide in my word and you're truly my disciples, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they want to kill him because the heart of man is hostile toward God. Romans says the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not submit itself to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Same word again. Cannot. So this raises a real dilemma. Man is unwilling and and man is is unable to respond to the truth of God. So here's the question. How does anyone get saved? How does anyone become a Christian if that's the condition? Now listen, I'm saying if that's the condition, I should be using the Greek word since that's the condition. Because it is a condition. It's not a possibility that it might be true. It is clearly biblically true all the time. How does one get saved? One gets saved and becomes a Christian by the sovereign grace of God who mysteriously overcomes that issue 
by his choice and power. Right? You see those verses there? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Lydia, this woman from Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. Right? So were these religious folks were listening. She is listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. You know, why isn't she? How come you don't understand? Because you're not able. But for her, she became able to respond. Philippians 2, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if this is, this is where man's issue lies, my next theological question from this passage would be, do you see the genetics of solving man's most basic problem? Right? Here would be the problem for us. Our problem has to do with ancestry. The problem that has to be solved the most in our lives is who's your daddy? Because you're going to do whatever it is your daddy does. That's the life you're going to lead. And here would be the problem with much of religion. Here would be a problem with an increasing amount of religion. Trying to get children of the devil to act like children of God. Listen, that reality is prolific in mainstream religion. It dresses up human behavior and says, this is the way you live your life. You do these things. You come to church. You give your money this way. You act this way towards people. You have this kind of philosophy of life. You treat people this way. And it describes all that to you. And it takes children of the devil and says, that's the way you're supposed to live now. You're a Christian. But that's not how God handles this situation. That's not God's solution. When we take children of the devil and then set before them the Christian life and say, hey, live this way, what we're we're telling them to do is reach deep into your gene pool and pull out righteousness from within you. Now, if my father is the devil and I reach deep into my gene pool, what on earth am I going to pull out? I can tell you this, it ain't going to be righteous. (laughs) Right? Your your outline should say Mark 7. I'm not going to read that passage, but Mark chapter 7 talks about what is in a man is what corrupts him. Evil deeds, adultery and fornication, greed and malice. These things all proceed out of the heart of man. So you take a group of people who are children of the devil, who genetically, that's what's in them, and you say, dig deep inside of you and start acting like a Christian. You can't do it. It's impossible to do it. Well, what needs to happen here? Let me skip to my last point here. Well, God's solution, God's solution is to kill the old man and give us a new life. God's solution is to sever our relationship with our ancestry and give us a new father. See, that's that's a key element of understanding what it means to become a child of God. See, if you leave that out, then you still got the gene pool of being a child of the devil and you're trying to act like you're a Christian. No, God did away with my old father because he did away with my old life. Well, how did he do that? By giving me a new one. And John, in the Gospel of John, teaches this all over the place. Right, this is that term that we race past too quickly and we think that it has to do with the early parts of our Christianity. It's a term called being born again. 
Remember that thing? Oh, yeah, that happened to me. You may have run past that too quickly. You may not have realized the incredible significance of being born again. Being born spiritually. Having God to be your father so that now when you dig deep and you reach inside, you reach into the realm of the spirit. And out of you comes the impulses of righteousness. The life of righteousness that's now in you. Right? John 3.3. 3. Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, same word, cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And how do we overcome this ancestral history? Get a new life. From a new gene pool, with a new ancestry, the faith of Abraham was that which put him right with God. It made God his father. See, the faith that causes us to be born again puts us in relationship with him where he is our father. He's my ancestral history. The spirit of God gives me life. Now listen, what I I want us to consider this morning. Listen, I, I know it's likely that you're coming from some kind of a religious background or maybe there just wasn't enough emphasis being put on this, this point, this place where you need to be born again. You need to come out of that relationship with old humanity that has the devil as its father and come into a new relationship with God. You can't, you can't sort of morph your way into that. You can't work your way into that. You can't attend church more and read the Bible more and just sort of slowly become more of a Christian. No, you're, you're either born again, just like you got a birthday where the Spirit comes now to be the source of life for you. Or you're, ch- are you're still a child of the devil. Right? You may be a good-looking child of the devil, right? I mean, I know we say child of the devil, and all of a sudden you got black cats running through your mind and people wearing all kinds of pointed stuff. I'm not talking about that kind of Hollywood goofiness. Do you understand these nice religious leaders that Jesus was talking to? He told them, you guys' problem is, and the reason why you can't hear what I'm saying is because you're a child of the devil. They were nice folks. They had murder in their hearts. Listen, this morning, when you reach inside, don't reach toward human potential. That will never ever rescue you. It will not bring you into righteousness. But if you're born again, if you're here this morning and you are born again, you have reason to act and live differently. You have reason to expect a different life because you are no longer of your father, the devil. That's not who you are anymore. You're a child of God with his gene pool, right? I mean, if Yao Ming's your dad, you're expecting you're going to be tall, right? If 
you're a Manning, you're going to be a star quarterback. Well, what if you're a child of God? What do you expect? Well, you should expect a lot. And that might be a problem for some of us. Maybe we don't expect enough. But for some here this morning, I want to I pray for you. And I want to invite you to pray for yourself. Have you been born again? Have you come into that relationship with God where the Holy Spirit now is in you? You've given yourself to him fully. And he's come. And his spirit now dwells in you. If you've never done that, I want to give you an opportunity to respond and to do that this morning. So let's bow our heads together. Father, right now, we all are aware from this passage that we in ourselves are unable to hear your word and that it will find no place in us. It will not bear witness with us because of our father, the devil. But God, for some here this morning, this word is making sense right now. And there's a reality that's before them that they can come into a relationship with you and a new life can come into their life, the very life of the Holy Spirit. Now, for those here this morning who are hearing that right now, Lord, would you, would you open their heart to believe? Would you bring them to the place of surrendering to your truth, surrendering their lives to you? If you're here this morning and you want to do that, tell God you want to do that. Tell him that. If you have a desire to do that right now, it's because God's at work in you. If he weren't working you, you wouldn't feel that way right now. But he is at work in you. So if you're here this morning and you want Christ to come into your life, tell him that. Lord, I want to be born again. I want your spirit to live in me. I want you to fill my life with your presence. I want to be a different person. I just don't want new ideas. I want you living in me. God, I pray for those who are turning to you right now. God, I pray that your spirit is beginning to give them the impulses in their life. You're beginning to steer them and direct them. The Holy Spirit is ministering holiness into their hearts. The fruit of the Spirit now is beginning to come so that there is a love and a joy and a peace that's accessible to them. It's not circumstantially driven. God, it's from you. It's a gift. There's a direction for their life. There's enablement for their life. That's the result of your presence being in them. God, do this great work. Lord, raise up your sons and daughters in this place to walk in the power of the Spirit. God, I pray for those who can remember being born again months ago, years ago. Lord, would you raise the level of our expectation? If you are my Father, oh God, what is my life capable of? What freedom awaits me? What ability to say yes to righteousness, to run eagerly towards those things that bring glory to God, to be loosed from chains and lies from my past, to distance myself from sin that entangles me. Oh God, this morning, would you awaken our souls
to give us the grace to do what we want to do, Lord. God, there are some here this morning who don't want to serve sin anymore. Lord, they don't want to. God, give them the sense of your presence and the reality of your life that says you don't have to. Here, come this way. Run this way. Walk this way. Embrace a new life. Receive the plan of God. Embrace the hope of the Spirit of God in your hearts. God, there are some here who want to overcome the restraints in their life and they want to live incredible lives. They don't want to live in a little box anymore, Lord. They don't want to be controlled by fear. They don't want to be limited in what you've called them to be and to do, God. There are some here who want something more than what they've got right now because they're your child and your spirits put those desires in their hearts. God, raise the level of expectation in their hearts that they would believe in agreement with you. They're no longer children of the devil. They're no longer children of the natural. They're no longer just who they are in their own natural capacity. There's something more. Your spirit is present. God, they can become incredible, anointed, powerful ministers of the gospel through their lives for your glory. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you, God, that all this is true because of whose we are. We're your children, God. You are our Father. Oh, God, be glorified in us. Let's stand up together. Let's sing. Thank God. Father of grace You've sacrificed Your only son for us The crucified Jesus Enlarge our hearts To love your son Grant to us the grace to walk with Him always, to make Him our great delight, bringing worship with our lives. Only Jesus, only Jesus, give us Jesus. Cry, only Jesus, only Jesus, the pearl of greatest prize. Spirit of Grace. Spirit of grace, you've shed your light upon our darkened eyes, unveiling Jesus Christ. Change our hearts, come change our hearts, conform our ways. 
transform our ways to honor Jesus' name. His glory our refrain. Let His love compel our own as we worship at His throne. Only Jesus, only Jesus, give us Jesus, we cry. We don't want outward religion. God, we want an internal reverence for and adoration of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you make us a church that is that way? Lord, and if there's repentance that needs to happen, God, would you make us quick to repent? Lord, if we have wandered away from the truth that we heard this morning, Lord, Lord, give us the strength by your spirit to run back to you ask you to make you the center of in our hearts again. Lord, there is there's no hope unless we live with the truth that we heard this morning. Uh, so God, God, make Jesus Christ the center of our lives. Lord, make that our one desire to have him be Lord of our life. We ask for that. In 
your name we pray.